Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Lord, thank you for today reminding us that we are to be thankful in all things and that you are faithful. You always have been, you always will be. And God, you know where everyone in this room, everyone that's watching, participating online, even those who will potentially watch this at a different time. You know where every person is at this moment and what they're wrestling with, struggling to make sense of, struggling to give thanks for. Lord, we've already been reminded today through through Mark's uh, comments this early in the service, through the songs that we sang, song that was just sung for us of how faithful you are and that we can look to you no matter what. We can trust you because you are good and your love for us is perfect. Your power is infinite. You know all things. And so you are at work orchestrating what is in our best interest and for your glory in these things we are facing right now. <clears throat> Lord, would you remind us, would you comfort us in pain? And you res- would you stir within us that gratitude, that heart of thanksgiving that will produce the giving of thanks in our lives and our words. And now, Father, we turn our attention to the book of Ecclesiastes. We come to the end of our time in this book. We ask that you would give us your understanding. Impress upon us the truth you want us to walk away with. We ask it in the mighty, powerful name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, today we come to the conclusion of our time in the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, As you may recall, when we first started this series, I had said to you that I felt as if, of all the books of the Old Testament, there certainly wasn't any more relevant to our day and age today than the book of Ecclesiastes. And this week I came across this quote from J. Sidlow Baxter. He said, Strange as the remark may seem to some, we do not hesitate to say that if there is one book more than any other in the Old Testament which we would like to send or for special consideration to millions of our fellow countrymen today, it is Ecclesiastes. And though it may seem still stranger, if there is one Old Testament book more than another which may many Christians of today need to read and pray over, it is Ecclesiastes. You see, the book of Ecclesiastes is so important because it helps us to see 
that if this world is all there is, if our ultimate pursuit is the stuff of this world, then we are of all men and women most to be pitied. Because all this stuff will eventually go away. It will disappear. It will vanish. And in the end, it's all meaningless if this is all that we're looking for. And the sooner that you and I come to grips with this reality, the sooner we will be able to begin pursuing or continue pursuing something of greater value and significance, that which is of eternal significance, which is found in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The preacher, uh, which I believe to be Solomon, that has written this, this book for us, has been outlining in the first seven, six or so chapters of this book, he's been outlining for us all of these perilous pursuits. Whether it's going after uh, uh, work, uh, to find significance there, or wealth, or pleasure, or whatever it is we might seek after. It says, in the end, it's all meaningless. If that's our ultimate pursuit. And then he begins then, I think in chapter 7, he starts giving us some, how do we then live, right? How do we live in light of this reality that everything under the sun eventually, ultimately is meaningless. It's vanity of vanities. It's a striving after wind. How do we then live? And he began to give us some, some advice, some, some wise counsel. And here now we come to the conclusion of all this. What does it all come down to? When it's all said and done, when everything has been heard, what's the conclusion? Here he tells us in chapters 11 and 12. Rather than read all of it at one time, I'm going to just read it in sections and then address what's going on in that section. So we'll begin with verses 1 through 6 of chapter 11. He says, Cast your bread on the, on the surface of the waters, for you will find it after many days. Divide your portion to seven or even eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. If the clouds are full... They pour out rain upon the earth. And whether a tree falls toward the south or toward the north, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. He who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. Just, just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. Sow your seed in the morning, and do not be idle in the evening. For you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed, or whether both of them alike will be good. The point I believe here is be prudent because life is uncertain. Be prudent because we don't know. Right? Four times in these verses he says, you do not know. You do not know. You do not know. You do not know. Life is uncertain. What does it mean to be prudent? means to exercise skill and good judgment in the use of resources. Take what God has allowed you to have, what God has given you, and use it skillfully and with good judgment. 
keeping in mind that we don't know what tomorrow will hold. We don't know how things will ultimately turn out in this life. And so the first thing he says, in essence, is diversify your investments. Right? Verses 1 and 2, cast your bread on the surface of the waters, and you will find it after many days. I believe what he's talking about is international, um, uh, basically sending your goods on the ship to other countries and then getting back something. That's what he did. Solomon did. He would send the stuff that was native to Israel to other countries, and then they would send goods back, and there was this exchange. Divide your portion to seven or eight. Diversify, because you don't know what misfortune may occur. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what's going to succeed and what's not going to succeed. <clears throat> don't put all your eggs in one basket, as they say. Right? Now, we, we kind of have an idea of that when it comes to finances and investing financially, right? And it certainly applies to that. But it also applies to other areas of our life. How we spend our time. How we spend the talents that God has given us. The time that we invest in other people uh, to help them grow up. We should be investing in people. And not just one person only, but we should be Spending time with people. We should be encouraging people. We should be using our time wisely in, in different ventures. We should be pursuing the things that God has put before us. And because we don't know how things are going to turn out. We ought to be prudent. Because life is uncertain. And then he goes on in these other verses to talk about basically don't let uncertainty keep you from acting. We can look at things and say, well, I'm not sure how it's going to turn out, so therefore I'm not going to waste my time. I'm not going to put anything into that. And, the, and basically he's saying there are some things that are fairly certain, like when the clouds are full, they're going to pour out rain. Right? When you look up and you see there's full, dark clouds, you're pretty certain they're going to dump rain. And then he uses this phrase, when a tree falls toward the north or the south, wherever it falls, that's where it's laying. And you say, what are you talking about? Basically, right, the tree falls, the wind might blow, a tree falls down, and, and they didn't have chainsaws and all that kind of stuff. Basically, that tree laid there and rotted. In fact, I was reading, uh, reminded the other day, um, R.C. Sproul, the author and theologian, <laughs> he was converted by this verse. Wherever the tree falls, the north and the south, wherever it lays, that is where it is. He shares this as a testimony in a, in a conversation with someone. He says, I had actually gone to a church-related college, but I went on a football scholarship, not because of any interest in the church. At the end of my first week, which was spent in freshman orientation, my roommate and I decided to hit some, some of the bars across the border. We got to the parking lot, and I realized I forgot my cigarettes. So I went back, and we went back to the dorm to get the, to the cigarette machine, and he said, I got my luckies and turned around and saw the captain of the football team sitting at a table. And he spoke to me and my roommate and invited us to come over and sit down and chat. So we did. This was the first person I had ever met in my life that talked about Christ as a reality. I'd never heard anything like it. I was just absorbed. I sat there for two or three hours. He didn't give a traditional evangelism talk to us. He just kept talking to me about the wisdom of the Word of God. And he quoted Ecclesiastes 11.3, Whether a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where it falls, there it will lie. 
And I just feel certain I'm the only person in all of church history to be converted by that verse. He said, God just took that verse and struck my soul with it. I saw myself as a log that was rotting in the woods. I was going nowhere. And when I left that guy's table, I went up to my room. And in my room by myself, in the dark, I got on my knees and I cried out to God to forgive me. There's so much uncertainty. But the uncertainty should not keep us from acting. He goes on to say, you don't know the path of the wind. We don't know how God forms the, the, the body of a baby in the womb. We don't know how God acts in the circumstances of life. And then in verse 6, he says, so sow in the morning and sow in the evening, basically, because you don't know which sowing morning or evening is going to take. And so he says, when you look at verse 4, he says, the one who watches the wind will not sow. Because if you look and say, oh, it's going to be windy today, and that's going to mess up my sowing, so I'm not going to sow today. And the one who looks <clears throat> at the clouds and thinks it's going to rain, I'm not going to reap today. If you keep looking around and say, well, it may do this, it may do that, you'll never do anything. That's what he's saying. Don't let the uncertainty of life keep you from acting, from doing something with your life. Don't wait for conditions to be perfect before you do something because you'll be waiting forever. Probably all of us can look back at, at things and regrets in our life and say, man, I wish I would have just stepped out. I wish I would have this or that. Maybe I was fearful. Maybe I was uncertain. Maybe I didn't, didn't know that this was going to work. And so I, I thought maybe if it fails, I'll feel like a failure. People will think I'm a failure, so I'm not going to do anything. And so you sit on your hands for your whole life. The older I get, the more I realize I don't have as much time ahead of me as I have behind me. Therefore, i got to make the most of it. We don't know how it's going to turn out. We don't know what's going to happen. But that uncertainty should not keep us from acting. We should be prudent in how we use the resources God has entrusted to us. But we need to step out and we need to act. Then he goes on in verse 7, down through chapter 12, verse 8, and he says this, The light is pleasant, and it's good for the eyes to see the sun. Indeed, if a man should live many years, let him rejoice in them all, and let him remember the days of darkness, for they shall be many. Everything that is to come will be futility. Again, speaking about just this life. He says, Rejoice, young man during your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of your young, of young manhood, and follow the impulses of your heart and desire of your eyes, yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. So remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. Let me just pause there. We're to be joyful because life is fleeting. Find joy in life, right? Enjoy life while you can, but do so responsibly. I think that's what he's saying here. He's saying, man, have um, uh, joy in the things you do, especially when you're young. Go after it. But he balances that with the fact that you've got to know 
And you're going to be held accountable for the things you do with your life. So don't go uh, reckless with your life. It's good and it's pleasant, he says, when you see the sun, when things are bright and, and cheery and, and the sun is shining in your life and everything seems to be going well. We like that. He says, but don't also remember the days of darkness when things aren't going so well, when, when the circumstances aren't what we would have chosen. But he says, find joy in the midst of it all. One commentator says the Solomon's advice here to enjoy life is, is good for us today since our earthly experience is indeed short. And we'll never return this way again. Even though the future is bright for the believer, the relative futility of our work and the uncertainty of our future on the earth still make joyful living a wise choice. He says also, enjoy life uh, because life is because youth is fleeting. Solomon balanced his counsel to the youth to follow his or her impulses and wholesome desires with a reminder that God will judge us all eventually. Solomon probably was thinking of God's judgments before death. But then one, one person commented and said, to older people it may seem to be too risky to advise a young person to walk in the ways of his heart and the sight of his eyes. Yet the advice is coupled with a reminder of responsibility before God. This is not to take away with one hand what is given with the other because a sense of responsibility belongs to youth just as vitality does. In all his writings, Solomon never advocated sinful self-indulgence, only the enjoyment of life's legitimate pleasures and good gifts. As I said a couple weeks ago, someone said, have a blast while you last, <laughs> but do so responsibly. Right? We are to enjoy this life. We are to enjoy the things of this life. God has given all things for us to enjoy, but we are within boundaries. God's boundaries. Because we're responsible to Him for our lives. God doesn't want us to walk around uh, uh, gloomy, you know, like Eeyore all the time. But we're to be responsible with the choices that we make. And then we come to chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. And basically He's saying, come to grips with your mortality. And, and he gives us a, uh, a metaphor, if you will, of aging. He says, remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come, and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. Before the sun, the light, the moon, the stars are darkened, and the clouds return after the rain. Basically saying, before you die. And then he says, in the day that the watchmen of the house tremble, talking about our hands and our arms start to tremble, right? As we, as we get really uh, at the end of our life, man, we start to uh, lose our strength. When the mighty men stoop, probably talking about our back and our legs just getting weak. The grinding ones stand idle because they are few, probably our teeth. And those who look through the windows grow dim. As Mark said, our eyes get bad as we get older. And the doors and the streets are shut and the sound of the grinding mill is low. You can't hear real well anymore. And one will arise at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of the song will sing softly. 
some think that that means you can't sleep anymore. Now you wake up at every little sign. Can't hear, but everything wakes you up. And then verse 5, furthermore, men are afraid of, high, of a high place, right? We get weary from heights. And of terrors on the road, we're not as sure of ourselves anymore when, when we're in a dangerous situation. The almond tree blossoms. Almond trees, the blossoms of almond trees are white and they fall off. You get gray hair and it falls out. The grasshopper drags himself along. We, get, we limp along, right? And then the caperberry is ineffective. Desire dies down is what that means. Maybe talking about intimacy desires with your, with your spouse. It may be talking about just desire for life. Vibrancy is just goes away. And man goes to his eternal home with mourners while mourners go about in the street. Remember him before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed. The pitcher by the well is shattered and the wheel at the cistern is crushed. And the dust will return to the earth as it was and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. We come to grips with our own mortality. It's going to happen. Unless some tragic thing takes place and we are taken out before we live a full life. But if we live a full life, this is what we have to look forward to in this life. So if this life is all you're looking forward to, oh, this is what it ends up being. The sooner we come to grips with this, the more likely we are to live with an eternal perspective in view. I'm not living for my later years in this life. right? Because my later years in this life are going to be this. I'm living for beyond my later years into eternity. And so I want to live now while I still have some vibrancy, while I still have some youthfulness about me. I want to live now with that in view so that the decisions and choices I make have an eternal perspective, not just a temporal not just making decisions now, making preparations for my retirement years when I'm old and can't do anything anymore. No, I'm making decisions now, right? Ideally, we should be making decisions now with an eternal perspective. What is going to invest in the eternal kingdom? That doesn't mean we shouldn't make preparations for the rest of our life here. With prudence, yes. But that's not where we put all of our eggs in that basket. We need to come to grips with our own mortality. And when we realize that this life will end in my death, then I have to ask, why? Why has death come into this world? Because the scripture tells us it's the consequence of sin. And I'm going to die because I... I'm a sinner. Which then causes me to turn my attention to my need for a Savior. And then we begin looking at the reality of what the gospel is. 
It is God's condemnation on sin poured out upon someone else on your behalf who took it on himself, namely Jesus. And he experienced what you and I should get because of our sin. And he rose again victorious over death and over sin. And he offers us victory over it as well through faith in him. As we entrust ourselves, our sinfulness to him. We entrust that he paid it and his death was enough. And I'm trusting in that so that when I stand before a holy God one day and he asks the proverbial question, why should I let you into heaven? I can say without a shadow of doubt, not because I tried my best, not because my, my good works outweighed my bad works, not because I, I had good feelings about you, God, but because Jesus Christ paid my debt. And I'm trusting him and him alone for my eternal destiny. And those are the only words that will matter in that moment. That's the only thing that will get us into heaven is the work of Christ on our behalf and our trust in that. The sooner we come to grips with our own mortality, the sooner we will begin to look for the answer and that is found in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and as believers, the more we come to grips with this, the more we will appreciate the gospel, the more we will want to know the details and intricacies of the gospel, the more we will praise God for the truth of the gospel the more we will want to proclaim this to those who are dying without hope. And this allows us to experience joy in this life, knowing that this life is not all there is. It's fleeting. Thirdly, Verses 9 and following, he says this, In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. And he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. The words of wise men are like goads, and masters of these, these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. Beyond this, my son, be warned, the writing of many books is endless and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is this. Fear God and keep his commandments. Because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act of judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. I think what he's saying is be intentional because life is difficult. The, the, the preacher here is intentional. He's teaching. He's arranging proverbs. He's, he's studying so that he can find the right words of truth to, and to, to, to put them, to, to, to um, communicate them correctly to us. And these words are like goads which are like prod and prodding sticks to, to keep us going. Be intentional. 
life gets hard. It's hard. We need to be encouraging each other. We need to be intentional about how we do that. I would say this. We are to teach people not just knowledge. What do I mean by that? There's a difference between teaching truth and teaching people the truth. One is educational. The other is transformational. He says the preacher taught the people knowledge. We want to make a difference in people's lives. We don't want to just dispense information. It's a whole lot easier to prepare a lesson to teach something to whomever than it is to prepare for somebody or for a group of people who need to hear this. And to consider those people that you are proclaiming truth to and and how this truth comes to them. We need to consider the people God has placed around us. We want to teach people not just knowledge. He pondered, he searched out, and arranged the Proverbs. He was very intentional about making sure that what he put down was accurate, correct. And then he says the words of a wise man are like goads, they're like prodding sticks. Prodding, just as the shepherd will prod the sheep on to the, to the green pastures. He will prod him and the sheep so that they don't go astray. So they go where he knows it's best for them. As we have opportunity to pour into other people's lives, and all of us have opportunities, whether it's publicly teaching or, or preaching, or whether it's investing in someone individually, we all have opportunity to teach people truth and to use the Word of God as a goad to prod people and encourage them on in the truth just as people have done for us. So thankful for the people God brought into my life that were like that for me. People I appreciated, people who built a relationship with me, people who were willing to invest a little bit of time to bring encouragement to me, to prod me on. And then he says, and people who are changed by the truth are like well-driven nails. They're they're sturdy, established. They're put in the right place, but they they hold secure. That's what our lives are like when we receive the truth and we are goaded on in the right direction by the truth, like nails that are driven in properly in the right place, in the right length, so that they hold tight and they become a solid structure in our life. And then I think the second thing we need to know is don't let your search for truth replace your relationship with the source of truth. <clears throat> Some of us really like to look, to learn. Like to read for knowledge, to gain knowledge, right? And it's it's a it's something we enjoy and, and we, we get some satisfaction out of that. But don't let your search for truth, knowledge, and understanding replace your relationship with the one who is the source of that truth. And he talks about how wearying it is to 
it would be, uh, you know, writing books and excessive devotion to books. And I don't think he's saying, or that God would have us say, uh, to, to think that, that it's just meaningless to go after knowledge in other places. I think the point here is don't let that become the main focus. And don't let other books replace the book in our life. I heard one Christian author say, you know, all the books that we write should be the hors d'oeuvres that whet our appetite for the real truth. Right? It should point us to the truth of the word and the source of truth who is God himself. Don't let your search be primarily academic. Because if so, it may replace your relationship with Christ and your zeal for the Lord. The conclusion then. Okay, Solomon, what does all this come to? You told us that you know pursuing all this stuff and an end of them, as an end of themselves is meaningless. You've given us advice. What does it all come down to? This, he says, the conclusion, when everything's been heard, everything's been said, everything's been done, here's what it is. Fear God and keep his commandments. Here's what it comes down to. Fear God and keep his commands. As we've talked before, what is the fear of God? I, I see it as this. Simply, it's first of all a recognition of who God is. There is a God, and we're responsible to this God. And so because of who He is and my recognition, I respond to Him in giving my life over to Him, knowing that He's in charge. And then it's about then yielding that control of my life into His hands. This is what it means, I believe, to walk in the fear, healthy fear of the Lord. I recognize who He is because I've seen His Word. I learn more about Him. And that causes me to respond to Him in worship and, and then yielding my life to Him. Submission into His hands. As we walk in the fear of God, that directs us. We walk in obedience to His Word. Why, why does a husband strive to love his wife as Christ loved the church with sacrifice and service? when there are times in which it doesn't feel like he's getting anything in return. Why does a wife, why would a wife submit to her husband and respect him as unto the Lord when there are times in which he's not respectable? Because of character that is developed from the foundation of a healthy fear of God and a keeping of his word. Why would a person go above and beyond in the workplace even though they don't get the promotion or even though they don't get paid extra for it? Why would a person love someone that's hard to love or give sacrificially to things they get no return for? Because of character that's built on the fear of God and the keeping of God's word. When you remove that, and we're only going to stay married as long as it's good for me. As soon as it starts getting hard and, and, and it... I don't feel like I'm getting a return for what I'm putting into this. Man, it's time to walk away. Find, find my soulmate. Regardless of what the commitment was at the beginning. Regardless of what character it is. Because it becomes about me and me only. It's about how I feel about things. And if I no longer feel this way, then I can walk away from it. Why would I give any more in the workplace than what's the minimum required for me to get a paycheck? It's all about me. Now, now if you're going to pay me extra, yeah, I'll do more. Why would I give 
of my time, talents, and treasures to something I'll never get a return for. Because it's all about me. When you remove the fear of God and the keeping of his commands, it becomes all about me. And this is what happened in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve said, well, God said not to eat from that fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but it looks good to the eyes, and I, I think it might be good to taste. And, and you know, this serpent here is telling me that we'll be kind of like God, and, and that's something I really want. And we see the progression of that through all the scriptures down to the very day in which we live. We live as if we are the center of it all. What I think, what I want, what I feel is most important. And it's selfish, it's self-focused, it's self-centered. When we remove the fear of God and the keeping of His Word, this is what we're left with. Welcome to our world. And if you and I, followers of Christ, don't take this seriously, how on earth do we expect the rest of the world to do so? It's easy, it's easy, right, to say, well, yes, there, look how terrible it is. We're part of this. We live here too. What are we doing to do what God has called us to do so that our lives might actually be light and salt? in this world in which we live. You might be doing everything you can do. I, I don't, again, I don't know. But we can't just curse the darkness without at least looking and saying, God, where am I in this? What does it look like for me to live out this conclusion? In my life, where I'm at, help me to walk in the fear of God. Help me to know what your word says that I can walk in obedience to. Because I trust you, God. And I know you have a better plan than I do. You see, when we fear God, we will trust Him. When we trust God, we will obey Him. When we obey Him, we will love Him. Because Jesus said in John 14, 21, He who has my commands and keeps them he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. The issue of, for us is love is not necessarily a feeling, though there are feelings attached to it. Love is action. And Jesus said, you, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. And when you do that, there will be a close relationship we have with God. You'll know him better. So bottom line, the thing that we've heard all our life if we've grown up in the church, trust and obey. Trust and obey. Trust God. And obey Him. Obey what you know. You can't obey everything. You're not going to do it perfectly. But this should be the desire and the pursuit of our life, to trust and obey. One commentator at the end of his comments about the book of Ecclesiastes said this, Why did the wisest man who ever lived make such a mess of his life? It was not because he was unintelligent or lacked wisdom. It was because of the choices he made. Compare Saul and David. Both were given opportunity by God to lead the nation. Right? The kings of Israel and Judah, you look at them, choices. 
the restoration Jews that came back from, from, uh, from Babylon. It says, we may possess much wisdom yet fail because we choose not to use it. The key to success is volitional more than mental, choices more than brains. We have to choose to follow all of this good advice. We have a choice. Most of us aren't lacking for enough information to be exactly what God has called us to be and do. We have to make choices. We have to trust Him and then walk in obedience. And I think if we trust Him and begin to obey what He says in His Word, God will direct our steps to be in the places where He wants us to be. <clears throat> involved in relationships He wants us to have. Making an impact as we consider what would God have me do? How can I be intentional here? How can I teach people not just knowledge? How can I impart truth to, to people? How can I trust God in this? Even if things aren't clear to me. Even if I'm uncertain about how it's going to work out. I trust God. And I'm going to walk in obedience. Again, we got to know we only have so many times, so many trips around the sun. And it's time that we consider what does it look like to make a difference <laughs> before our last trip, before it's time to head home. Gracious Father, we come down to this. When it's all been heard, when it's all been said, when it's all been done. Conclusion is that this stuff is going away. This world as we know it will not go on forever. The only thing that will last into eternity that's on this earth is us. And so, Lord, help us to look to the one who is beyond this world, the one who is eternal one who is the source of truth, the one who is our creator, our redeemer, the one who has a sovereign plan and purpose, the one who wants to work in and through our lives. God, help us to trust you and to obey what your word says. I don't know if it will make any difference in the world in which we live and the, the, the direction things are going. I don't know if it'll help turn this world back to the Lord, turn this country back to you, Lord. I don't know any of that. But what I do know is you've called your people to trust you and obey. And leave the results in your hands. We'll do our part and trust you with the rest. And God, when we stand before you, be able to hear those wonderful words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Lord, help us to keep that in mind as we live this life. We ask it in Christ's name.